Keep your Bibles open if you want, and also there's an outline sheet in your, your worship folder if you want to use that as we move through this message. We're moving on into the 10th chapter here of, of John's Gospel through this series. This past week, I was in a restaurant. I tend to make conversation with the, with the host people, with the servers and, and stuff, and get to know them if I can, if I'm there over a period of time. And um, one of the servers walked by and happened to mention that she had, uh, uh, her family had gotten a couple of little baby ducks um, at some point during the week. And my first thought was, oh, you know, how nice for you. Um, you know, and what came out, what came out was, um, well, they're, they're cute. And she goes, yeah, they're, yeah. And I said, they turn into ducks. And I, and I thought about that later, and I, well, that wasn't very nice. That wasn't a very nice thing to th- say. And I could have said the same thing if she had said, we just got a new little lamb this week. And I would have probably said, uh, they turn into sheep. And that's the, you know. You may be old enough, you may be old enough to remember, or you've heard about the Candid Camera TV show. You remember, some of you remember that. One of the classic episodes took place at an exclusive prep school where all the students excelled with aptitude and great potential. Alan Funt, who was the candid camera originator, went to that prep school for this particular episode. He posed as a career consultant, advising these brilliant young men about vocation and career choice. Best be suited for them on the basis of tests and examinations and interviews that seemed to the students to be quite authentic. One young man eagerly waited for the counselor's analysis. They sat at a table, he on one side, this counselor, supposed counselor, Alan Funt, on the other, and the counselor went through page after page of data and facts and information, and TV audience uh, saw the look of anticipation on this young fellow's face. But they roared with laughter as they saw his utter disbelief and confusion when the counselor said to him, So son, after evaluating all of your tests and this time of interview, we've decided that the best job for you is a shepherd. And the young guy just sat there, just wide-eyed and slack-jawed. He sat in stunned silence and he finally said, what? A shepherd? Of sheep? <laughs> now, we don't know. We don't know if the crowd that listened to Jesus compare himself to a shepherd were surprised or not. With David, the shepherd who became Israel's king about 1000 BC. The state of shepherds within the culture, the state of shepherds had hit a a cultural high point. It was about 1000 B.C. But following David's death and then on through subsequent years, the status of shepherds had come to be seen a whole different way. They'd come to be seen as lowlifes and outcasts in the culture of Jesus' day. Because their never-ending night and day labor with the flocks, the shepherds couldn't keep all of the meticulous ceremonial cleansing laws. 
And so at this point, when Jesus is comparing himself, equating himself with a good shepherd, at this point, the listeners are hearing that, and there's probably some good surprise because shepherds at this point are generally despised. They're often classified with thieves. They're shunned in business, and they're unable to actually even be a witness in a court of law. They weren't allowed into the temple, and so the shepherds who kept the flocks in Beth, around Bethlehem, uh, in the southern suburb of Jerusalem, the shepherds that kept those flocks were unable to actually go into the temple where their flocks were used as sacrifice. And so the, they raised the sheep that were used in the temple, but they themselves were outcast from the temple. And yet Jesus calls himself here a shepherd, a good shepherd at that. And though Jesus went against some of the culture of his day, the picture of shepherd and sheep is woven all through the language, the imagery of the Bible. And John 10 focuses this image. It's a, another of Jesus' I am statements that we find in John's gospel. Now, as we've progressed along, We've heard Jesus say, I am the bread of life. He said, I am the light of the world. A few weeks ago, we heard him say, before Abraham was, I am. And now, here's a next one, another one. It was about the third century B.C. when the Hebrew scriptures were translated into Greek for those Jews who had scattered throughout the known world that the divine name, the Hebrew name Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, you put in the vowels, you get Y-A-H-W-E-H. That divine name of God, the name that God called himself way back in Exodus chapter 3, when Moses was saying he was being called to go into Egypt and bring the Hebrew people out, he's saying, what name should I tell them, the God who sent me? What name shall I tell them? And God's response was, tell them, I am Yahweh. Tell them, I am has sent you. Well, that, that name translated into Greek is ego emi, E-G-O-E-I-M-I, ego emi, and it's the same thing. I am the one who makes things happen now. And so it's a clear, clear declaration on Jesus' part that he has the authority of God. He is God come to this earth. Jesus uses that to declare and define, describe himself. I am God with you. Now we focus this portion of John chapter 10 and we see why Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. What that means for us as part of his flock. So we take a look at it. The, the work of the shepherd, Jesus. Sheep are mentioned over 300 times in the Bible more than any other animal. And though we may not like to admit it, it's no wonder that there are so many comparisons of humans, us, <laughs> with sheep. No other class of livestock requires such careful handling, more detailed direction. They're basically defenseless. They're easily frightened. They're prone to wander astray. They have poor eyesight. They tend to follow other sheep without thinking. They'll overgraze, they'll destroy pasture land, and they will actually nibble their way, without looking up, they will actually nibble their way to lostness. They're frequently stubborn, frantically beat wildly when they're cast. Now, 
The term cast, you've heard the, the term downcast? Well, it comes from shepherding. It comes from sheep. When a sheep is cast, if it lays down and if it gets into a depression in the ground, it will turn over and it can't get up. If a sheep winds up on its back, it cannot get up by itself. And what begins to happen is that its little legs actually begin to go back and forth. It will begin to bleat and cry loudly. And the more frantic it becomes, the more gases that build up within it. And it will actually suffocate and die without help from the shepherd. The term is cast, a cast sheep. It's where we get our term downcast. Sheep need someone to guide them, to guard them, or they quickly get into trouble. Sheep desperately need a shepherd. And so do we. So do we. And the Bible presents the shepherding ministry of Jesus from three different perspectives, three really sweet perspectives. The first one is this one. Jesus talks about himself here in John chapter 10 as the good shepherd who dies for the sheep. Now, under the old covenant, the sheep died for shepherds. But under the new agreement that's revealed with Jesus, the shepherd dies for the sheep. It's It's a voluntary death. Jesus says it over and over again in this passage. I'm the good shepherd. And then listen to this how many times. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I lay down my life. I lay down my life for the sheep. I lay it down of my own accord. Now the word good here means noble or praiseworthy or beautiful. Noble, praiseworthy, and beautiful. Well, why is Jesus noble? Why is he praiseworthy? Why is he worthy of praise? Why would we say that Jesus is beautiful? It has to do really essentially with his heart. It has to do with his heart. He voluntarily lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus' death was not an accident. He wasn't the victim of some human conspiracy. He wasn't a martyr who, whose life ended in tragedy. Jesus' death is the great turning point. It's the hinge point of human history. He obediently participated in his father's plan. He obediently participated in the plan of God, deliberately giving himself his life in a once, never to be repeated, substitutionary sacrifice for the sin of the whole world, dying voluntarily for our salvation. We could not accomplish what needed to happen on our own. Jesus gave himself for us. So it was a voluntary death, but also he's telling us here that it was vicarious, simply meaning for. He dies for the sheep. He did not die for his own sin because he had none. He died for your sin and mine, for the sin of the world. He died in our place. Now the word that's used here not only means on their behalf, but in their place. And it's really what the Apostle Paul's getting at in Romans. At just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly, for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It means that Jesus willingly died in our place. We deserved punishment. We deserved death for our sin. We deserve to be absolutely separate from God. And we cannot, put our, we cannot put ourselves back into relationship because God is holy 
And Scripture says he cannot look on sin. He can't look at sin. Well, if that's the case, I have a problem, don't I? If God, who is holy, completely righteous and good and perfect, cannot look at sin, then I have a problem when God refuses and cannot look at me. Now, the only way that that relationship can be brought back together, brought back into a wholeness of love and joy and peace and all that we need, all that we want, the only way that that can take place is by God doing something for us. And that's what Jesus does. He willingly took our place. He died for us so that we can be free from sin's penalty and free from its power. Now, all of this... Jesus here in John chapter 10, he's talking about himself as the good shepherd. But scripture gives us more, more pictures. Talks to us about Jesus as the great shepherd. Now, as the good shepherd, Jesus finished the work of redemption. On the cross, he purchased, he purchased his people. Now, his ministry as the great shepherd is to perfect his people. Look at how the author of Hebrews says it. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, here it is, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what's pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Great shepherd equipping us, working in us. Now the word that's used here for equip can mean a variety of things. It can mean uh, to equip an army for battle. It has a sense of to outfit a ship for a, for a voyage. It can mean even to set a broken bone. It can mean to mend a fishing net. There are numerous shades of meaning in that little word equip. To equip, to outfit, to make strong, to make useful. All of that meaning about us, to equip us, to get us ready for service, service to him. We're meant to be useful to the shepherd. We're meant to be useful for the shepherd. He works in us. Why? Oh, so I can feel good. No, no. Oh, to, to um, you know, me, myself, my wife, my husband, my family, my kids, and his job is to make us comfortable. Uh, no. No, that's not it. Why? What's the point in all this? To equip us, our salvation is meant to result in service. It's meant to result in ministry and in care for the people around us through our daily life, through our week. The question for each of us then is, am I doing his will? Am I, in that sense of knowing that I, Jesus died for me, and now he lives in me to equip me to live for him, to make a difference in the lives of the people that surround me through the week. Is my life pleasing him in the way I live, the way I give, the way I interrelate with the folks around family, school, work, neighborhood, on and on? Am I different? Am I, in my equipping, am I different and I living, am I doing his will through my life? Through the things I say, the way I behave. The... We could make the list long. 
in the ways that it applies to each of us in our own unique ways. The good shepherd died for the sheep. The great shepherd lives for the sheep. One author says to protect and perfect and direct. So there's the good shepherd, the great shepherd, but there's another aspect to what Jesus shows us here, what scripture gives us. The Bible calls him the chief shepherd, and he will return to gather his sheep. Look at how Peter writes about it. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Now, what Peter is saying there then is that one day the chief shepherd, Jesus, will return and gather his flock. That's why there in in John 10 that Kevin read just a, a, a bit ago, when Jesus says, I have other sheep that are not of this pen or this fold. What Jesus is talking about there. And he's giving the the Jewish people that he's speaking to at that point, he's giving them a glimpse of a wider, a wider pen, a wider uh, gathering way. Uh, He's opening up the pen to a wider flock. And he's talking about the Gentile world, that the gospel would go into all the world when he gives the Great Commission. So I have other sheep that are not of this fold, not just Jewish, I have other sheep that will be brought into the fold who are part of the wider world, the Gentile world, non-Jews. One day the chief shepherd will return and gather the whole flock. We'll enter into the full realization of what Jesus promises there in John chapter 10, verse 16. One flock, one shepherd. Great English preacher Charles Spurgeon says it this way, There is so much, there is so much in Jesus He's the good, the great, the chief shepherd, but he's so much more. Emblems to set forth may be multiplied as drops of dew in the morning, but the whole multitude will fail to reflect him in all his brightness. Creation is too small a frame to hang his likeness. Human thought too contracted, human speech too feeble to set him forth in all his fullness." Well, Scripture does a good job in helping us to understand the fullness of what it means of talking about Jesus as our shepherd. Our past, our present, our future are all secure through this shepherd, Jesus. Think about it here. The good shepherd, the good shepherd gave his life for the sheep. Our past is forgiven. Our past is forgiven. Not only forgiven, but forgotten. The great shepherd gives his life to the sheep. Our present is fulfilled in him. So our life now, in our birth on up to when we meet him, when we die or if he comes again, this present life, this life here on earth, is fulfilled in him. The the great shepherd gives his life to the sheep, and he makes more of us than we could ever make of, of ourselves simply on our own then the chief shepherd will return to gather his sheep and our future is secure in hope. So the good shepherd provides for our past, our sin is forgiven. The the great shepherd provides for our present in this life here and now and the chief shepherd takes care of our future when he comes to gather us with all the flock. Each of us then, each of us living under the total care of my Shepherd becomes very, very personal. And that's how the 23rd Psalm really starts out. 
The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now, a rod was like a club. It was like a short club. And it had a, a gnarled a ball of wood at one end. It was heavy and stout and thick and, and, and used, used as an instrument of authority. It was, it was used to keep track of sheep. It was used to guide and rescue and to protect the sheep. The staff, staff was an instrument of, of support and, and of, of comfort. And you've seen a shepherd's staff with the hook. They would use it to bring a, a sheep back closer to the shepherd or to rescue a sheep that was, was down in a ravine and would pull them up. And it was used to caress the back of a sheep with just rubbing it along the back of the sheep. So the rod and the staff, they comfort me. Now, look at these verses then, the first part of Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Now, notice that it says, I walk, I walk. It's not, I run through it. It's not, I run from it. Not panic and tremble. The picture here is one of calm, steady steps through the valley. What's that mean? Well, first of all, it just means I refuse to falter. I will fear no evil, is what the psalmist David says there. Now, David, as a shepherd, knew about shepherding sheep. He knew about caring for sheep. He knew that they needed meticulous care, and they would fear without him being there. But as long as the shepherd was guiding, protecting, caring, and feeding, providing providing for them, the sheep had not one thing to fear. I will fear no evil. Now the word will, I will fear no evil, it implies a choice, doesn't it? I will. It implies choice. It's an act of volition. It's a decision. Pain is inevitable. Misery is optional. This side of heaven. Jesus tells us, in the world you will have trouble. Now you can say, well, I wish he didn't say that. I wish he said, in this world you might have a little bit sometime. No, that's not what he said. In the world you will have trouble. The I will fear no evil is here at the first part of this psalm. And it implies a choice. It's volition. It's decision. Pain is inevitable. Misery is optional. I can choose... You and I can choose to be discouraged. We can decide to focus on negative. We can focus on just, just the problem. We can decide to concentrate on positive, hopeful, uplifting, encouraging. Because so much of life is choice. I choose to trust my shepherd. That's both in John 10, Psalm 23 here. I choose to trust my shepherd. What's that mean? Focus on his power rather than just the problem. Not just the circumstance, but on him. Not merely the situation, but on the shepherd. Look at how Paul says it in Colossians. God will strengthen you with his own great power so that you will not give up when troubles come. Human energy runs out. That's what Paul's saying there. Some trouble goes on for some time. We can lose our energy. We can lose our perspective. The joy at times can seem like it just gets kicked out of us. Human endurance has an end to it. And so in the valley times, you and I need a power, a power source larger than just us. We need something beyond 
just our own human capacity to deal with the stuff that presents itself. What we have here is a promise of God to help us. Simple as that. God will strengthen you. But it's our decision. It's our decision to grasp that power. It's our decision to follow the shepherd. If I'm trying to make it on my own steam, it's no wonder. It's no wonder I get depleted. Now, the psalm goes on. We rely on his faithfulness. You are with me. Your rod, your staff, they comfort me. Now, here in this fourth verse, there's a strategic change in language. It's easy to miss. In the first part of the psalm, all of the pronouns are in third person. The verses talk about the shepherd. They talk about the shepherd. He leads me beside still waters. He guides me in green pastures. He restores my soul. But when it comes to walking through the valley, we see a change to second-person pronouns. It's interesting. It's amazing here. It's no longer words about the shepherd. It's conversation with the shepherd. Don't miss this. You are with me. Your rod, your staff, they comfort me. What's all this getting at? It's, it, it's in the valleys of life. It's in our difficult times that so often, those are the things that so often bring us face to face with God. We're getting along, up and down, whatever, and then something goes bump. We come up against it. We hit a valley time, and we realize that we've got to do more than just talk about God. We want to have a conversation. We want to have a relationship with God. When I'm going through some tough thing, I don't want to just talk about God. I want to talk with him. That's when religion becomes relationship. When the message that may have only just been in my head now begins to find its way to my heart. It's in the times we're in the valley. It's the times when we're tired or worn out or worried or troubled, wondering which direction or which course of action or wondering if we can endure, we begin to talk with the shepherd. And that's when we hear him say over and over, I am the good shepherd, the great shepherd, the chief shepherd. I am. I am God with you. You're not having to face anything, anything by yourself. He's our protection, our strength, our guidance, our support. Because the truth is, when you and I are going through some valley, some tough time in life, the scary parts are the shadows. We're asking, how am I going to make it? The thing to remember, it's just, it's just a shadow. Shadows are always larger than reality. Fear of the problem is usually greater than the problem itself. And so we face it, but we don't face it by ourselves. We don't face it alone. The shadow question is, what if? What if this happens? What if it's that? What if that occurs? What if it's bad news? What if it's... The shadow question is, what if? The steady response is, even though. Even though. Shadows cannot hurt us. The shadow of a dog cannot bite you. The shadow of a snake cannot sting you. 
Shadows have no substance. They can frighten us, but they cannot hurt us. We face them, but not alone. Look at Psalm 34 here. The righteous do not escape all trouble. There it is. It's echoing all those ages before. It's echoing exactly what Jesus tells us. In the world you will have trouble. Psalm 34 here. The righteous do not escape all trouble. And we could say, well, I wish that was different. Okay, now that we've said that, let's get on with life because it's not. Okay? I've told you this story before and I will tell you this story again because you need to hear it. There was a time years ago after 11 o'clock worship, I was in the fellowship hall visiting with a woman who was a first-time visitor, first time here. She went on and on about how great her life was since she has become a Christian. Since I accepted Jesus, I have had not one problem. I have had not one difficulty. Not one circumstance has turned against me. Not one thing has caused me any problem in my life. And I listened to that. And then she said, and haven't you found that to be true for yourself? And I said, no. And she went, and you're the pastor. (laughs) Now, I've told you that story before. Everything she was saying in in terms of what was, she was was either lying or she was delusional. I mean, I'm I'm not being mean. That's just the truth because it's not so. It's not so according to Jesus. It's not so according to this little psalm right here. It's just not true. Okay? The prosperity gospel will take you down a road that will cause you all kinds of pain and all kinds of issues if you ever wind up being honest with yourself because the prosperity gospel is a false gospel. This side of heaven, Jesus tells us, the Bible tells us, you're going to have problems. There's going to be difficulty, but how do we do it? How do we handle it? How do we get through it? Not on our own and not by denying it, but by facing it with all the resources of God Almighty through our Savior Jesus. We live under the complete care of the shepherd. We all experience the valleys of life. Disappointment and illness and tragedy and loss and financial setbacks and family struggles. But the difference The difference in the life of a follower of Jesus is that there is a source of strength when we're ill, comfort when we grieve, courage when we're tempted to give up, companionship even in the shadow places, and a call, a call to care, to care for others in the way that we have been cared for by our shepherd. There is a call that comes to every believer, every one of us, to care for the world out there that Jesus died to save. It means that we're called to be different. We're called to respond differently. We're called to have a different way of speaking, a different way of behaving, whether it's with family or school or job, neighborhood, the people we interact with this afternoon, as we're pulling out of the parking lot and somebody cuts you off in the lot. (laughs) No! No! Somebody doesn't quite 
serve you quick enough at the restaurant this afternoon. Mm. No, no, no. Do you know what, you know what Christians are known for on Sundays by wait, wait staff? Unruly kids, kids out of control, and poor tippers. That's the, that's the, they, took a, they took a survey, Hayden. They took a survey, and it had your picture right there. It's a true survey. Unruly kids and poor tipping. That's just, that's sad. Now, all this stuff I just have given you now for free. So that's just, you know. Uh, <clears throat> We're called to be different. We're just called to be different. The difference in the life of a follower of Jesus, a source of strength, a source of comfort, courage when we're, when we're tempted to give up, companionship in the shadow places, a call to care as we've been cared for. The difference, the difference is not so much the absence of the shadow, but the presence of the shepherd, the one who gave his life, think about it again, the one who gave his life for us, who gives his life to us, and who will one day gather us at his return. Past, present, future, all secure, all secure, by the understanding that he is our shepherd. He'll never leave us or forsake us. He'll take care of us all the way. Let's bow together in prayer. Lord Jesus, you are our shepherd. We see those different aspects of what it means for us. Good shepherd, you giving your life, uh, the... Uh, great shepherd equipping us to handle the ups and downs the problems perplexities of this life chief shepherd one day returning for us gathering us with all the flock you give us perspective you grant us power to to fill us with abiding comfort and the courage of your presence but also the care of ministry that you equip us for and so, Lord Jesus, thank you for all the promises of your word. Thank you that we can come alongside as your under-shepherds, your people, and care for those that you bring into our lives. Help us to do that and have a sense of that kind of calling that's upon us as well. It's a privilege, and it's a joy. And we thank you for it. We pray all this in your name. And all God's flock said, Amen. Amen. Amen.